We are glad you're with us here. You know, I was really touched by the verse that Pastor John called out for our communion time. And I'm going to use that as, a, as an opening prayer here. You know, Jesus said, Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling. That's a massive verse. So much we, we rely on ourselves to keep ourselves from stumbling, from sinning, from making mistakes. But the Bible says here that the grace of God and the power of God works in our life to keep us from stumbling. And our confidence has to be in God even in times when we feel like we're failing and we're not measuring up. That's good news. It says, and to make you stand in the presence of his glory blameless with great joy. You know, God's delight is that at the end of the ages, we can stand before him without shame, without guilt, just fully free. No shadow, no cast, no guilt, no sense that we don't meet God's approval. God does it for us so that we can stand with that utter confidence. And to only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory. God's kingdom is full of light. His environment is light. There's no darkness, no, no shadow. There's only the warmth of who he is and majesty. Don't you love beauty? The Bible says that God is beautiful. He is majestic. He's towering. He's compelling. He's breathtaking. Dominion and authority. Boy, we need good leaders. We're going to have the perfect leader. We have the best leader. And we're going to want him to be elected forever and ever and ever because he is righteous and he is perfect before all time and now forever. So God, we come before you. We thank you for, Lord, these two verses that Jude gave us. And God, we take them to heart. And we're opening our, our sermon time this morning, God, mindful of your great power and mindful of your spirit to do all these things. And as we come now to your word, may you continue to stir our hearts, teach us, fill us. We give thanks to you now in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're continuing our series from uh, the Minor Prophets, and we're going to be looking at the book of Nahum today. Um, but I'm going to use one prophet to introduce another prophet. And I'm going to use Amos to introduce Nahum. So we sang this verse here this morning. In fact, I could almost preach off just our song sheets. So inspired. But in Amos chapter 5, verse 24, and this is one of the most famous verses from the prophet Amos. Pastor John touched on this when he preached from this book. In chapter 5, verse 24, Amos said, Let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. We're going to hear about the justice of God this morning, and it's going to be flowing strong. It's going to be flowing like a river, and the righteousness of God is going to flow like an ever-flowing stream. You know, if you have a, a riverbed that's dry, that there's no water, and the rocks are just there and dry, it's not a, a pleasant scene. But when the water starts rushing and the river starts moving, that's exciting. You get to ride it. And there's, there's so much life that's in that scene. And a lot of times we don't equate justice with life, but we're going to see a cleansing that Naaman speaks to, Nahum, pardon me, speaks to, because there is a deep cleansing that needs to come. And we're going to dive into this, and I want to just bring up this slide here for us to orientate us again on, on where we're at 
as you know, um, I've put the name of the minor prophets in red for us so that we can see exactly where they're situated, who they're speaking to, the northern kingdom, the southern kingdom, where they are actually uh, on this timeline. And uh, I have little check marks here. So these are the prophets that we have now worked through. Again, these are the 12 books in the, in the last part of the Old Testament. So we've worked through Hosea, Amos, Jonah, Obadiah, Joel, and Micah. And so this morning, we're going to be looking at Nahum. And uh, pardon me here, I scrolled through it a little bit too quickly. So we're going to be looking at Nahum right here. <clears throat> and the important thing for us to notice is that Nahum has a, a deep connection to Jonah because Nahum is prophesying not to one of the tribes of Israel. He is prophesying to Assyria. And the capital of Assyria is Nineveh. And so if you remember your Old Testament and you remember the prophet Jonah, you know that Jonah also prophesied to Nineveh. So these two prophets are connected in the prophetic ministry that God has given them. And I'm going to put up some of these other points here. And don't worry about the details. I'll highlight them uh, as I make my way through the message. But what you see here is that when Jonah was preaching <clears throat> back in 760, he was very against the idea that Nineveh or Assyria would come and repent. This is a very brutal civilization. They were taking over a lot of territory. And of course, they came against Israel. And so Jonah was like, the last nation that I want to receive God's mercy is Nineveh. But he preaches, and miraculously, the entire nation repents from the king all the way down to even the animals in the kingdom. Sackcloth and ashes were put on all the population. So you're thinking, wow, this is great. You know what? Nineveh is turning to the Lord. This is revival. We talked this morning. We prayed this morning. We worshiped this morning about revival coming, and that's what hit Nineveh. But unfortunately, the grace of God was short-lived on that nation because 40 years after that, what we find here is that Nineveh goes and attacks the northern kingdom. And not only do they attack them, they completely disperse them. They exile them. The ten tribes of Israel, they are gone after this encounter with Nineveh. So we're talking about one of the saddest moments in Israel's history. They no longer have an identity. Ten of the twelve tribes, they are gone. So they've done, in that sense, God's bidding because God used Nineveh to discipline Israel. But Nineveh, as the ruling empire, continues on. So they become very proud and they become very arrogant. They think, you know what? We took the northern kingdom. Let's take the southern kingdom. So 20 years later, they come down to Judah during the reign of Hezekiah, and they destroyed 46 cities in the land of Judah. And they're like, we got this. Now it's time to march on Jerusalem and to take the capital. So they're marching on Jerusalem, and where not only it was by divine intervention that Nineveh was stopped because 185,000 soldiers were surrounding Jerusalem, and God slayed them in one day. So then Nineveh ends up going back to its own capital. Now you would have thought, okay, maybe they would have stopped some of their aggressive ways. But their little foray into Jerusalem was just like child's play. Because they continue to gobble up more territories and more peoples. And by 6060 BC, right here, they had become the most powerful nation in the world. 
I want to read a, a quote to us on what the city of Nineveh was like. It became the mightiest city on earth with walls 100 feet high, enough to accommodate three chariots riding side by side. That's how wide these walls were. It's like a highway. The circumference of the wall measured eight miles long, and dotted around the walls were 200 towers that stretched another 100 feet above the walls. So we're talking a mighty fortress at different points of it, 200 feet soaring into the air. In addition, the walls were surrounded by a moat of 150 feet wide and 60 feet deep. And all of this was protecting the royal palace, which housed a royal library of 20,000 clay tablets. And there was enough storehouse within the city to withstand a siege for 20 years. That's an incredible statistic. So Nineveh considered itself to be completely undefeatable. Now, while the physical city was imposing, it was just a reflection of the extreme brutality of the Assyrians. Their city was really a monument to their hyper-aggressive, violent spirit. I want to share some quotes to you from the kings that ruled during that time. And these are actual written testimony. And it's going to be pretty graphic. And if you're 16 or under, I'd actually just ask you to cover your ears. And I'm describing this on purpose so that you'll understand why God's wrath was justified in being unleashed against Nineveh. Their violence and aggression showed no bounds. So here's what one of the first kings said. I stormed the mountain peaks and took them. In the midst of the mighty mountain, I slaughtered them. With their blood, I dyed the mountain red like wool. That's the mindset that they had. Shalomanzer II, another king, a pyramid of heads I reared up in front of their city. Their youth and their maidens I burned up in the flames. Usually you leave the women and you leave the young people untouched, but he just threw them into the fire. Shennacherib, another king, I cut their throats like lambs. I cut off their precious lives as one cuts a string. Like many waters of a storm, I made the contents of their gullets and entrails run down upon the white earth. Their hands I cut off. And another king describing his capture of an enemy leader, I pierced his chin with a keen dagger. Through his jaw I passed a rope, put a dog chain on him, and made him occupy a kennel. And then he boasted that they skinned the Egyptian corpses, stripped their skins, and covered the city walls with them. We are talking unspeakable brutality. And so Nahum says in chapters 3, Nineveh was a city of blood. And who has not felt your endless cruelty? The Assyrians were despicable. They were beyond words. It was horrifying, beyond inhumane. And so you ask, does this deserve the highest judgment? Indeed it does. Let justice roll like a river and righteousness like a flowing stream. We need the cleansing. Now because of Assyria's dominating position in the world, their kings were filled with pride and arrogance. One king said, I'm powerful. I'm all-powerful. I'm a hero. I'm gigantic. 
I'm colossal. I'm honored. I'm magnified. I'm without equal among all kings. The Syrians were known for their genocidal treatment of nations and deporting victims by having them march on feet, knowing that they would die. And these marches were known as death marches. One theologian put it, only a shriveled soul would remain dispassionate in the face of such atrocities. So Nineveh was ripe for judgment, and Nahum's words couldn't have come soon enough. And so I've compiled a few of the key verses in these three chapters that speak to Nahum's prophecy over Nineveh. Chapter 1, verse 14, The Lord has issued a command concerning you. Your name will no longer be perpetuated. I will prepare your grave. 115, you will be completely cut off. Chapter 2, verse 7, It's decreed that Nineveh will be exiled and carried away. When God uses the word decree, he is using the highest level of authority. He's not saying there's any conditions that you can meet that can change my mind. He's not saying there's anything that you can do to turn the corner or to back it up. I'm decreeing it and nothing can change it. It's fixed. You don't want God to decree something against you because then it's done. 2.10, Nehemiah speaks of Nineveh as being emptied. She is desolate and waste. Behold, I'm against you, declares the Lord of hosts. I will pelt you with filth. When some translations, I will pelt you with garbage. We're talking humiliation and indignity coming on the Ninevites, just like they did to those that they oppressed and overtook. 3.7, Nineveh is in ruins. Fire will consume you. The sword will cut you down. It will consume you as a locust does. Now we know, right, about the locust and what Jonah prophesied. And, and, and Nahum is saying to them, listen, there's nothing that's not going to be shredded. And then finally, 319, nothing can heal you. Your wound is fatal. Nineveh's fate was a done deal. And the way that God brought fulfillment to this prophecy was that Nineveh was situated be, beside the Tigris River, which is one of the major rivers in the Middle East. The Tigris River began to flood and it began to overflow its banks. And as a result, it completely flooded the city of Nineveh and it broke down parts of the wall. Now, the Babylonians who were vying for world domination with Syria took advantage of the situation and after a two-month siege invaded through a breach in the wall. They plundered the city and set it on fire. And Nineveh was brought down. Nahum's word came to pass, God cannot be denied. God is against sin and agents of sin, and he came against Nineveh with great force. Chapter 1 captures the emotion that was inside of the Lord. A jealous and avenging God is the Lord. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes justice on his adversaries. He reserves wrath for his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger. Really? Yeah, it took 150 years. And great in power. And the Lord will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. He will pursue his enemies into darkness. Let justice roll like a river and righteousness like the flowing stream. Actually, when Amos said those words, he was referring more 
about injustice between people. People taking advantage of the poor, the marginalized, those who don't have a voice for themselves. And so Amos was saying, listen, justice needs to happen for these people. They cannot be trampled down by the system. And so he was bringing a systemic change. He was prophesying to systemic change that needed to happen in the nation. And so I think for a lot of us who are justice-oriented, yeah, we say, amen, Brother Amos, let it rip. Preach it. We don't like to see people hurt and traumatized and left out and rejected. But there's another side to justice. It's not just the horizontal. It's not just between man and man. Justice is also between God and man. It's the vertical aspect. And so when we talk about letting justice roll, we're talking about the justice that needs to come from heaven to cleanse what is going on on earth. And so we get a, this articulation by name of what was in the heart of God, that he is going to pour out this cleansing and take vengeance on his adversaries and pursue his enemies into darkness. In other words, God is a God who takes right and wrong seriously. This is one of the basic premises of God and one of the basic premises of the Bible. There is right and there is wrong. It's not a shifting morality. It's not a relative morality. That's what's popular in culture. Hey, what you believe, you believe. What I believe, I believe. Listen, if everyone lived by that, we would be in absolute chaos. If people truly believed in evolutionary theory, truly believed in the strongest surviving and trampling people, and there's no morality, there would be utter chaos. The very fact that there is some semblance of order speaks to the fact that God has given something inside of us to care for one another that's completely anti-evolutionary. Why would we sacrifice for the weak? Why do we sacrifice for those who can't speak for themselves? That's against the process of selection. There is a right and there is a wrong. And God was expressing that. And Nahum was his servant in this manner. You add up all the verses in the book of Nahum, there's only 47 verses. But it's organized into three chapters. And God used Nahum to slay Nineveh with his prophecy. Nahum told the Ninevites with great specificity what was going to happen, that they would be destroyed by flood. Now you have to remember the timeline once again. Nahum is prophesying this to the greatest empire on the earth, has the greatest city on the earth that's actually impenetrable. Forty years before it happens, he says, you're going to be wiped out by a flood. That took guts. That took faith. That took prophetic revelation and insight. This was a man that was filled with the Spirit of God and truly saw as God saw. And he was speaking the counsel of God. You will be destroyed by the flood. Chapter 1, verse 8, with an overflowing flood, he will make a complete end of its sight. Chapter 2, verse 6, the gates of the river are open and the palace is dissolved. He prophesied that their city would be set on fire. I will burn up the chariots in smoke. Fires will devour the bars of the gates. Fire will consume you. 2.13, 3.13, 3.15 are the annotations. Nahum prophesied that their sacred temples and images would be desecrated. They thought they had the God of all gods. 
They thought their sacrifices to the pagan personalities would keep them and preserve them and make them dominant forever and ever. But God said, I'm going to humiliate your idols. 114, Nahum says, I'll cut off the idols and images from the house of your gods. Nahum said the city will never be rebuilt. He prophesied that no longer will the voice of your messengers be heard. He prophesied that the leaders, as mighty as they were, as fierce as they were, they would leave their positions and abandon their posts. Chapter 3, verse 17, your guardsmen, your marshals, when the sun rises, they will flee. And then I love this thing that Nahum said. The city would be captured with ease and not difficulty. How can that happen? How do you scale a wall that's 100 feet? How do you come against chariots that are riding furiously on the top? How do you get across the moat without drowning? How do you marshal thousands and thousands of troops? I mean, how could it happen with ease? And in chapter 3, verse 12, Nahum just exercises powerful prophetic metaphor. He says, all your fortifications are like fig trees with ripe fruit. It's not this 100-foot concrete edifice. You're just like fig trees with ripe fruit. And then he says this, when shaken, they fall into the eater's mouth. Wow. Just get under the tree, just shake it a little bit, and the figs fall into your mouth. Mmm, yummy, yummy. Just like that, the mighty city will fall. And that's exactly what happened. God completely ruined the foundations by the flood, the Babylonians came in without hardly any resistance. And within two months, the city was decimated. All that Nahum prophesied came to pass exactly as he said. The accuracy of his prophecy bears testimony to the power of the prophet's office. That's why the prophets loomed large in Israel and Judah. When they spoke, when they gave details, when they predicted what was to come, and they came to pass, people said, whoa, God is speaking through them. If God raised up a prophet to Canada, prophesied what would happen to the economy, prophesied what would happen to coronavirus, prophesied what would happen in Ottawa, gave times and dates, if they came to pass, you can be sure it would get the attention of us Canadians. That's what God did through Nahum. At the global international level. Nahum's words were truly inspired. But you step back and you look at these 47 verses and here's the bottom line. This book is about the fierce wrath of God in the face of insane sickness on the part of the Assyrians. God acted in righteous anger and as per Nahum's words, there was no chance for repentance. So we reflect on that, we meditate on that, and we say, okay, how then does the message of Nahum speak to the gospel? So there's two things that I want to draw out here. The first is that mercy has an expiration date. Second is that God is relentless in his pursuit of us until that expiration has been reached. I really only have one point here, and that's that mercy has an expiration date. That's a very sobering thought. 
Just as Esau had crossed the red line in the book of Obadiah and reached a point of no return, so Nineveh did the same thing in Nahum's prophecy. Mercy had expired. God gave Nineveh 150 years to get back on track. That's a long time. That's the reign of as many as 10 kings. And yet in chapter 1, verse 3, it says that God is slow to anger. 150 years, I'd say that's kind of slow to anger. Sometimes I anger after 15 minutes with my wife. Not 150 years. Pastor Chuck, who was here preaching last week, told me a hilarious story. He was at the Mayo Clinic, which is world famous. He was getting a checkup, and his wife, Kitty, was with him. And they checked into a hotel close to the hospital. And she didn't like the first room. So she said, can you change us into the second room? So they went into the second room. She didn't like the second room, so she went in and asked for a third room. So they went to the third room, and she didn't like the third room. So then they checked into a fourth room. And Chuck said, by this time, I was ready to lose my salvation. <laughs> like, how many times do we have to change rooms? Well, then, and this is just like God's humor, they happened to be coming out of their room, and Chuck was walking down the hallway, and he saw this older man with a baseball cap pulled over his face. And who was it but Billy Graham, who was there to get his... Uh, exam, of course, this was before Billy passed away. And Kitty, his wife, said, see, I was led by God. We wouldn't be on this floor to see Billy Graham were it not for the fact that I changed the room four times. <laughs> now, that's just a little bit of patience. We're talking about God being patient for 150 years. He could have easily intervened at 50 years and says, this is enough. This is enough cruelty. This is enough aggression. This is enough violence. He could have intervened at 100 years, but no, he waited 150 years. Don't ever get it into your head that God has a hair trigger temple. Don't ever get it into your head that God is quick to anger. Don't ever get it in your head that God is a mean God. That's what the world will preach to you. It is a false gospel, and it's not true. So with the crimes that Assyria was committing, he waited 150 years. At that point, their fullness of sin had been reached, and the clock ran out. Now in Matthew chapter 25, Jesus also gives us the concept of mercy having an expiration date. I don't have time to go into it, but it's the parable of the ten virgins. It talks about five virgins that had enough oil, five virgins that did not have enough oil in their lamps. And in the Jewish tradition, when there was a wedding party, the virgins and the, and the bridal party, they would wait for the groom to come. And they never knew when it was. It was sort of that surprise element and that excitement. Well, five of them had enough oil in their lamps to wait for the groom to come because he was delayed, but five did not. And so they had to run off and get more oil. And while they were gone, the groom came. The party was on. So they went into their celebration, shut the doors, and the five Virgins that did, have enough, did not have enough oil came back to knock on the doors and said, let us in. And Jesus said, no. Time was up. So under the new covenant, how do we interpret this idea that mercy has an expiration date? How does mercy expire on us? 
There are two ways it happens. The first is if we die without Christ. If we've died without putting our faith and trust in Jesus, mercy's over. There's no more opportunity to repent and have eternal life. We will all stand before the judgment seat of God. Now, of course, if we've put our trust in the Lord, we'll experience mercy and life forevermore. John 3.16, God so loves the world that you can have eternal life. A second way that mercy expires on us is if we are without faith when Jesus returns. You're like, Jesus is going to come back? I don't believe in that. Well, you know Jesus came once before, so he can come back again. The Bible says that there's a, a privileged generation that will be alive to personally see Jesus return with their own eyes. Just like 2,000 years ago when the inhabitants of the earth witnessed Jesus' birth and ministry. And when that event happens and Jesus' second coming is consummated, mercy is over if we don't have faith. It's like the proctor says, put your pencil down. Time is up. Turn your paper in. Of course, this is very sobering. But this is what we see in Nahum. That's why he did not preach an invitation to repentance or for repentance because mercy was over. God's mercy is patient and long-suffering, but it's not without end. Genesis chapter 3 says this. God says, My spirit shall not strive with man forever because he also is flesh. Nevertheless, his days shall be 120 years. Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of men was great on the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. So God puts a time frame. Time is precious. Yes, we have lots of it, but it doesn't go on forever. And yet the Bible tells us something encouraging about our limited time on earth. From the moment that we're born to the day that we die, God is unrelenting in his pursuit of us. I once was lost, but now I'm found. I once was blind, but now I see. God loves every single one of us because he created every single one of us. Most of you know I'm a biologist by training, pharmaceutical scientist. I was deeply steeped in evolutionary biological biology theory, and I can tell you we are not from a simple amoeba. And I can tell you that we're not descended from monkeys and apes. We're not. Now, that's a proposition I'm making to you, but it doesn't make sense. I've studied it. I've been steeped in it. It's how we explain things as scientists. It doesn't make sense. We are not created from some primordial soup. We are created by God. You are fearfully and wonderfully made. You know how some people say a baby or a kid can be so ugly that only a mom would love them. If you've created something, you love them. Why is it that God loves every single one of us? Because he created every single one of us. He doesn't have to work at it. He does not have to work at it. 
He doesn't say, oh, you're a vestige from the salamander. He doesn't say, oh, my goodness, you're, you know, you're a relative of the primates. I'm going to try to love you. No, he created you from your mother's womb, fully human, in the image of God. Therefore, he loves us dearly in his heart that none of us would perish, but all would come to know the knowledge of truth. God sends his Holy Spirit through the ups and downs of our life. He orchestrates things in a divine way through people, through circumstances, through things that happen just, quote, serendipitously. Could be a trigger from a, a radio song or a movie that we see, but he, he pulls and he tugs in our heart. And this is the picture that we see in, in Luke 15 when Jesus gave us this parable about the lost sheep. There's 99 of them, but one of them is lost. And he leaves the 99 in the open to go after the one until he finds it. We, we sang about it, right? This refrain of God's reckless love. Of course, God's not reckless, like a truck driver that's careening across the highway. Reckless in the sense that his, his love is wild for us. He is wild about you. I was saying to the worship team on Friday night, the Bible says that God will sing over you with love. Can you imagine God singing over you? What's his voice going to sound like? It's a very romantic, very intimate thing to sing over someone or to sing to someone. And the Bible says that he will sing over you. He is wild in his love for you. He will leave the 99 and go after the one. I don't earn it. I don't deserve it. Still, you give yourself away. There's millions and millions and millions of people that reject Jesus. But God doesn't say, huh, that's enough. That's enough. I'm, I'm tired of you. No, he's relentless and he keeps coming after us and he will chase us down. And you know what? He will send you a signal that you understand, that you can interpret. The signal that he sends to me is not the signal that he will send to you. The things that he orchestrates for me is not the things that he orchestrates for you. He crafts your journey into his heart. So the lost sheep finds it and he hoists that little lamb on his shoulders. I just love this picture. It's a picture of safety. It's a picture of deliverance. It's a picture of freedom. You know, a lot of times when people are lost, the greatest feeling is to be found. I was hiking in Yosemite Park with one of my friends when I was in college. He lived in Montana. He'd been to Yellowstone many, many times. I'm sorry, not, yeah, he'd been to Yellowstone many, many times, and he goes, okay, Rich, I know these woods like the back of my hand. I said, okay, great, I'll follow you. He goes, we don't have to go on the trails that are marked. I said, okay, great. Sure enough, we got lost. And I didn't know whether to kill him. I was so upset. We literally were dead lost. I said, you, you told me you knew where we were supposed to go. We were making our way through just thick shrub. We had to, you know, slide underneath this stuff. By the time we actually got to the bottom of the mountain, I was delirious from dehydration. I've never been delirious before, but I was delirious. And that feeling of we are found, we're in our place now of safety, that relief. You're that one sheep. When God gets a hold of you, you're going to feel safe. You're going to feel relief. You're going to feel like I'm home. The parable of the lost coin. 
Jesus was a master at painting these little pictures through stories that just get us in our heart. Talks about this woman who had 10 silver coins and loses one of them. I don't know about you husbands, but my wife, boy, if she loses something, watch out. The whole house has to be searching for this thing. So this woman loses one of her coins. Now, by tradition, commentaries tell us that these were coins that were given to her during her wedding, so they're extremely meaningful. It's like she had lost her diamond ring, and so she sweeps the house and searches carefully for it. The whole purpose of this picture is to articulate and communicate the urgency of it and that she will not stop until that coin is found. That's God. He will not stop. He will not be deterred until he finds you. And then the picture of the prodigal son. Of course, this is very famous. We all know it. We don't have time to go into it. Except to say whatever condition you're in, whether you're in a pigsty, whether you've spent all your money, whether you've blown your inheritance, whether you've slept with women, whether you've slept with multiple women, no matter what situation you have been in, God is ready to receive you back. The word prodigal actually means extravagant. It doesn't mean rebellious. When we say the prodigal son, we think, oh, that's the rebellious son. That's the guy that gets in trouble. Actually, prodigal means extravagant. The guy had huge appetites. Whatever he did, he did all in. So if he was going to gamble, he was going to gamble all in. If he was going to have sex with women, he was going to have sex with many women. He was just all in. But it just means extravagant. And so this is not only a story about the prodigal sons, it's a story about the prodigal father, the extravagant love of the father, that when the son returned, let's kill the fatted calf, let's have a feast, let's put a ring on him, let's put a robe on him. That's exactly what Paul says, that God lavishes us with spiritual blessings. That's the heart of God. That's the picture we need to have in our hearts and in our minds. Theologians call this irresistible grace and unconditional election. God makes himself irresistible, like an ice cream cone or a lollipop. Like, I just got to have that. He has a way of making himself like the pearl of great price or the hidden treasure that makes us wealthy. If you knew there was a plot of land and there was hidden treasure that would make you a millionaire and no one else knew about it, how many of you would go and buy that piece of land? Every single one of you would. And that describes the feeling of finding Jesus. I'm telling you, when I found Jesus... I had to count the cost, what it would mean if I had to give up allegiance to my family, if my mom and dad would disown me. They never raised me to be a Christian. I wasn't a Christian. We had good moral ethics, but I had no religious background. And who knows how they would respond to me. When I became a pastor, my dad never raised me to be a pastor. He raised me to be you know, an educator or a doctor or an engineer. And walking in the ways of God would break it caused me to break away from all that. But when I saw Jesus in the Bible, I go, I want you. I want to be cleansed. I want eternal life. I'm cashing everything in for the pearl of great price who is Jesus himself. You are my hidden treasure. I am going to be rich. Ha ha. <laughs> the Bible says that he loves us unconditionally. That in itself should compel us to run to God 
There is no other religion in the world in which God says, I love you unconditionally, full stop. You don't have to work to make yourself good enough. You don't have to base your life on karma or good deeds. A few years back when we were buying a car, I was negotiating with the salesman, and he said to me, he goes, I believe in karma. And I, and I thought, okay, well, that's quite an introductory phrase. And he goes, I want to give you a good deal. I'm not going to give you a bad deal because I believe in karma. Well, yeah, it worked out to my advantage, but we don't live life that way. <laughs> we do not live that life that way. God says, I love you unconditionally. My son died on the cross, paid the price. All my wrath has been poured into Jesus so that you don't have to experience any wrath. His love is transcendent. I love you because I am love. It's my very nature. I don't have to work at it. You know how we know we're sinful people? We have to work at loving people. If we were sinless and good people, we don't have to work at it. It naturally is our nature, but it's not our nature. As cute as our babies are, when they're born, they're little sinners. They're complainers, they're poopers, they're naughty. You have to teach them how to be good. If they were sinless, you don't have to teach them a single thing. Right? Now, Mother Mary is the only mother on earth that got the privilege of having a sinless baby. Wow. What a blessing. God loves us unconditional because he is love. He is the definition of love. And this is the love with which God pursues us that we might be reconciled to him. Everything around us tries to dismiss and distort and diminish this truth of who God is to keep us away from God. But God is not to be denied unless you choose to deny him. He's not denying you, but you can deny him. He will not force you to do anything. He's the ultimate gentleman. At the end of our lives, we can't say, you know what, God, you didn't come after me. You didn't give me a chance. You didn't show me the truth in the way. No, God gives us all the chances we need, just like he did with Nineveh. In fact, even more chances than we deserve. So Psalm 136. David says, give thanks to the Lord for he is good. For his mercy endures forever. God's mercy is boundless, but it's bracketed by our life on earth. It's important for us to know that. You only have one life to explore the mercy of God. So don't take it for granted. Don't be like the Ninevites who are hard-hearted. Don't be proud and arrogant. Don't cast God aside. Don't rush headlong into your sin and your own ugliness. You can't save yourself. Only God can. Father, we come before you. We see that justice was rolling with great power and righteousness was flowing like a stream. And Nineveh was given that opportunity to receive it, but they threw it away. And mercy was gone. Lord, you've given us 70 years, 100 years, 120 years, Father God, to come to the saving knowledge of you, to understand your great love. And we thank you for your relentless pursuit of us, God. 
that you make yourself known. And so would your grace be poured out upon our hearts? Would your grace be poured out upon our city? God, that we would see, as Jude said, how majestic, how glorious, how much dominion, and how much authority you have, God, for our good. So, God, that you keep us from stumbling and that we can stand in your presence with great confidence. We thank you now in Jesus' name. Amen.
when God comes after us, both God's justice and God's mercy is wrapped into his love. That when we look at God's love, there's both justice and mercy that comes with it. That the justice is because of sin. That we have all sinned and we have all fallen, fallen short of the glory of God. But the mercy comes through his son, Jesus Christ. And that Jesus Christ dying on the cross pours down his love and brings down his mercy onto our lives. As a church, we can respond in two ways. One, where we, where we just receive God's justice because we're too proud to receive Jesus. Or we could receive Jesus and in doing so, we receive his love and his mercy. The reality is God is always pursuing us. But what you receive is a choice that you make. And what you receive is either justice or mercy. God's coming after you. God is coming after you. He's doing everything he can to come after you. How are you going to receive him? So church, I want you to go and talk to those people that you know that haven't received Jesus. Talk to those people, the friends and family, where as we preach through this sermon series, we always see the justice of God, and sometimes it's hard to receive, but we always finish off with the mercy of God, and his love comes down. But the challenge doesn't just stop there that we get to receive his love. The challenge is for you now to go and, and tell people of that glory, to tell people of that mercy, to tell people of that love. That's your responsibility, church. So who do you need to tell? Who do you need to bring in so that they could experience all that God has to offer? Let's pray. Father God, we just thank you, Lord. We thank you for just your relentless reckless love coming after us and Lord may we receive this love because of your son Jesus Christ and because we receive this love that overwhelms us that we go and we tell others of that love that you have for them as well so Father God we just pray that you continue to encourage us in our walk with you but Lord, motivate us and move us to continue to extend your kingdom. So Lord, we thank you and pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Be blessed. We'll see you guys next week.